I think it's important to note that we are effectively a microbial system, right? We mentioned that we've got anywhere from three to 10 times more microbial cells at a minimum 150 times more microbial DNA. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Jockers Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine, chiropractor, and functional nutritionist, and I'm the host on this podcast. And I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself. And on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. Well, hey guys, welcome back to the Dr. Jockers Functional Nutrition Podcast, where we really believe that the body was created to heal itself. And when we line up the right lifestyle habits, our body will do what it was designed to do, which is heal and regenerate the cells and give us the best quality of life and the best life expression possible. And so today we're going to talk a lot about the microbiome and how you can optimize your microbiome so you can be at your best. And I've got a friend of mine, Kieran Krishnan. He's a research microbiologist. He's been involved in the dietary supplement and nutrition market for the past 17 years. Makes some fantastic products that we'll talk about as we get going here. Kieran also established a clinical research organization where he has designed and conducted dozens of clinical trials in human nutrition. So Kieran, welcome to the podcast. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, absolutely. Well, I know you're one of the, the leading experts in the natural health world when it comes to the microbiome, which we know plays such a big role in health. And so can you explain more about what the microbiome is and how it impacts our health? Yeah, you know, and one of the key things you said in your intro that you focus on is this idea that the body is really designed to heal itself, right, given the right circumstance. Um, and more and more, we're coming to find out that the microbiome actually holds a lot of the repair tools for how the body heals itself. So it's, it's super relevant to everything your audience uh, listens to and everything you, you guys talk about on your show. Um, so the microbiome really encompasses all of the living microbes in and on the body. Um, and that is that can be bacteria, viruses, amoebas, protozoa, yeast, a whole bunch of different um, types of organisms. Uh, but not only does it, it, does it incorporate the organisms themselves, but also their genetic elements. And that's a really important part because we know we're somewhere around three to 10 to one uh, cells of microbes over human cells, right? We've got somewhere, and then the numbers change a little bit when we first started digging into the microbiome, it seemed more like a 10 to one ratio where for every one human cell, you had 10 bacteria or other microbe cells. Now we're seeing it's probably closer to three to one. But one thing that is absolutely certain is that the difference in the amount of human DNA that we have in our system versus microbial DNA is staggering. Uh, in fact, that started off as somewhere around 150 to one, meaning we have 150 times more microbial DNA in our system than we have human DNA. The latest research out of um, Harvard actually shows that it's likely much higher. Uh, it's likely upwards of a thousand fold higher, um, which means, you know, for the longest time we thought our DNA dictates everything about us, right? Um, our DNA in our system is minuscule compared to the DNA of the microbes. And we use 
a lot of that DNA. So a lot of our function is dictated by the types of microbes we have present, their relative abundance, meaning the proportions of the microbes, and then what kind of genetic elements they're providing us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so fascinating when we think about it. It's a whole ecosystem of itself. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about where things can go awry, where things can, um, problems can happen when it comes to our microbiome. I know you've talked a lot about metabolic endotoxemia and how that impacts us. And so let's talk about basically how that ecosystem gets out of balance and what is endotoxemia. Yeah, endotoxemia is... Um, to me, arguably the most serious condition that is that is related to dysbiosis. And dysbiosis is a term that basically descri- describes a dysfunction in the ecosystem of the microbes, right? And we, we could dig into that a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll also explain why endotoxemia is probably the most dangerous condition to face. Um, but going back to what actually is causing this dysbiosis. Um, I think it's important to note that we are effectively a microbial system, right? We mentioned that we've got anywhere from three to 10 times more microbial cells at a minimum 150 times more microbial DNA. Uh, We are considered a holobiome, which is a super organism. We are an organism that is actually made up of thousands of other organisms working in concert. So we've taken this um, elegant, beautiful microbial construct and we've put it in a very antimicrobial world, right? So we have essentially shot ourselves in both feet um, just based on our developments and practices and so on. Um, The most common things are, of course, our sources of food, um, which tend to be contaminated quite a bit with antibiotics like Roundup and, you know, all the herbicides and pesticides, besides being toxigenic and causing um, toxin overload, they are also really strong antimicrobials and they kill off good bacteria in great proportion. Um, Then we've got things like chlorine in our drinking water, fluoride in our drinking water. Of course, the overuse of antibiotics, um, you know, not only by humans ourselves, even the CDC estimates at least 50% of antibiotics are, are unnecessary because they're being used for viral uh, infections and so on, like ear infections. Um, but we're also using antibiotics quite extensively in the animals we eat, right? So that so it's everywhere. Um, you know, everything around us has antimicrobial function, you know, all the cleaning tools and, and all our personal care products and so on. So we're basically created this, this ecosystem that doesn't fit the way we've been designed by nature. Mm. Um, and that drives significant dysfunction because it drives unusual selection pressures in our ecosystem. Um, now, one of the first things that is noticeable about this is in the gut and the development of digestive disorders. This can be evident in a newborn baby, right? Now, the newborn baby gets a lot of his or her microbiome from mom. Uh, passing through the birth canal, hopefully they're vaginal born. If they're not vaginal born, they're going to come out uh, through C-section and uh, they're going to get a lot of the microbes in the, in the environment from the doctors and nurses and the air and so on. Um, so they're going to start off right off the bat with a dysfunctional ecosystem. Right off the bat, you see those, those children with the higher risk for things like diaper rash and eczema um, and the inability to digest mother's milk. So you start to see the digestive issues right off the bat. Um, and then that translates to a lot more chronic immune dysfunctions, uh, metabolic dysfunctions, cognitive dysfunctions, 
there is a, a close correlation between the type of microbiome that's developed early on and the risk for autism spectrum disorders and so on. So it all starts very early and, uh, and then progresses and, and maintains uh, through continuous exposure to all of these antimicrobial compounds like antibiotics, foods, and so on. And, um, and eventually, you know, it leads to this development of metabolic endotoxemia, postprandial endotoxemia. And that basically means, in short, is that your, your gut barrier, the gut lining, is not functioning as a barrier. Mm. Um, what people don't typically realize that when something goes into your digestive tract and is moving through the tube in your intestine, the lumen in your intestine, it's still considered to be outside the body, right? Even though it's entered into the system through your mouth, uh, through your nose, and other parts of the upper respiratory tract and oral system, it can enter into the digestive tract. Once it's in the digestive tract, it's still technically outside of the body because a digestive tract is a tube that's open on both ends, right? It, things move in and it's supposed to move out. What constitutes moving into the body is moving past the gut lining, the intestinal barrier, and going into circulation. And the control mechanism of keeping things from moving into the circulation from the digestive tract that shouldn't be in there is, is done by microbes in the digestive system. And when those microbes are, disru uh, are disrupted, then they cannot manage the barrier function of the intestinal lining and things are allowed to leak through on a, on a regular basis. The most important one when it comes to endotoxemia is LPS, lipopolysaccharide. Yeah, and that's kind of the outer cell wall on, on certain bacteria that they release, that they kind of shed. And I've heard it said that infections, chronic systemic infections have killed more people in the history of mankind than anything else. And so the body is hardwired to protect against some sort of infection from getting in, getting into our brain, causing meningitis and killing us. So it creates inflammation when it senses that it may be at risk, right? Like seeing something yeah. like LPS. Is that correct? Absolutely. In fact, we've got really, really tight control systems to detect the presence of these types of endotoxins in the, in the system because what they can lead to is uh, from sepsis, they can go to septicemia, and then from septicemia, they can go to bacteremia, and that is deadly, right? So that septicemia and bacteremia, you could have somebody walking down the street being perfectly normal, feeling perfectly normal. Within 48 hours, they're on death's doorstep. Uh, and in fact, that's a big factor in what's killing people right now with the entire pandemic yeah. that's going on, right? right? right. Sepsis and septicemia is, is, is um, a big culprit there. So yes, the body is really, the immune system and the body is really geared towards identifying the presence of those types of toxins, endotoxins, and, uh, and, and reacting against it in a very aggressive manner. Um, and LPS, lipopolysaccharide, like you said, it's on the outer cell, uh, it's on the outer cell membrane of gram-negative bacteria. And gram-negative bacteria make up somewhere around 60, 70% of all the bacteria that live in your gut. So it's being generated all the time. Now the bacteria need it, they use it for things like communication, they use it for attachment to the lining, they do a lot of things with it. But when the cell lyses and breaks open, which bacteria die constantly in the gut, um, they release this LPS and now it's a floating around toxin. Uh, and it's called an endotoxin. That part is important because it's a toxin that's generated from inside, right? As uh, compared to an exotoxin, one that we get exposure to outside. The difficulty with the endotoxin is you can't get away from it, mm -hmm. right? An exotoxin, like a mold toxin in your house, 
it can be pretty deadly and devastating. But if you're if you have the ability, you can move and leave that place and get away from the exotoxin. The endotoxin is constantly generated on the inside, and that's that that terminology, metabolic endotoxemia. The emia part means that that endotoxin is now entered into the blood, and uh, the moment it enters into the blood, it triggers. Uh, systemically and locally, wherever it embeds itself, a really profound inflammatory response because your body thinks, holy crap, we're going through septicemia and and my host yeah. might die. Yeah, and we can survive for a long time with an inflammatory process. We just don't thrive. It breaks down different tissues in our body, but slowly, as opposed to killing us really quickly like you were talking about. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you know, and it's important to note that that um, you know what this metabolic endotoxemia does—this constant daily leaching in of this endotoxin—it creates this what we call a subclinical inflammation, meaning you don't feel it necessarily, but you can measure it. It's there. It's real, and it's profound enough that that subclinical chronic low-grade inflammation becomes the basement and the or the foundation for the vast majority of chronic illnesses. Right. You know, it's at the root cause of driving everything. And, and we could go through virtually yeah. every chronic illness and, and we could talk about specifically how this LPS endotoxemia affects that condition from metabolic disease, diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, autoimmune conditions, everything the root causes with this endotoxemia. Yeah, it's so fascinating because we always think about something like diabetes. We think about it just eating really bad, not moving your body, which obviously plays a big role in it. But uh, most people don't think of the microbiome as a factor. But yeah. obviously, it, it does play a huge role in that. Yeah. So in a, in a couple of different ways. Number one, a, um, a dysfunctional gut that allows this endotoxemia to occur will drive diabetes in a couple different ways. Uh, one, in fact, the American Diabetic Association has published at least four studies on this topic where they describe the endotoxemia as a primary insult in setting off the cascade that leads to type 2 diabetes. Wow. Um, right? And that's massive for, the, for yeah, an association huge. like the American Diabetic Association to say that. Yeah. Um, and in fact, studies from, uh, from the American Diabetic Association on um, experimental endotoxemia where they take animals and they induce endotoxemia to mimic the kind of endotoxemia we get as humans, they showed that not only um, the endotoxemia is, is associated with diabetes, it's, it's the cause and the primary driver of both diabetes and obesity. Mm. Uh, and that's published uh, by the American Diabetic Association. Yeah. And, and there was a massive study called the Cordioprev study. The Cordioprev study followed 462 people who had a high risk for diabetes. They had all the comorbidities, right? They had uh, they were overweight and so on. They had metabolic syndrome. Um, and they followed them for 16 months. And they measured all kinds of biomarkers constantly. What they were looking for is which of the biomarkers, inflammatory markers and so on, was the best predictor of the development of type 2 diabetes. Because these people were not di diabetic yet, but they had risks for diabetes, right? So in those people that they followed, they found only one marker was 100% predictive of the formation of type 2 diabetes, and that is your serum uh, LPS levels. Hmm, if wow. your serum L everything else was variable, right? Even things like yeah. cholesterol and body weight increase and all of that stuff was all relative and did not correlate 100%. Only thing that did was LPS levels in the blood. Um, and the crazy thing is there's other studies that show that one of the ways that LPS levels in the blood 
creates diabetes is, is through something called central insulin resistance. Um, central insulin resistance is even scarier because what it, what it does is the LPS gets into the circulation, makes its way up into the brain, into the hypothalamus, and actually causes inflammation and damage to that part of the hypothalamus where it, your brain can no longer read your blood sugar levels. Hmm. Right? So that's a complete disruption to the control systems. Um, it used to be thought that diabetes is basically all of this hyperinsulinemia, this constant spiking of insulin, and then eventually your pancreas or your islet cells give out and they can't make insulin anymore and they can't read and respond to the signals. Um, but this is showing your pancreas can be working perfectly fine. Your islet cells are producing plenty of insulin. Your brain can't read your blood sugar levels anymore. It's called central insulin resistance. And here's the thing about that study. It showed it happens irrespective of body weight. It can happen in a perfectly lean, healthy person who has leaky gut. And, uh, and at least 55% of normal weight, no, normal body weight, healthy individuals have severe leaky gut. Wow, that's really, really fascinating. So basically, then your, your body's not going to produce the right amount of insulin because it can't read what's happening with your blood sugar. So you may end up with reactive hypoglycemia at times, right? Where you eat a meal and then two hours later, you're, you're dizzy and your blood sugar drops so low, you're irritable, hangry. So you're not, you're not responding well to it. And then for other individuals, their blood sugar just stays really, really high because they're not producing, yeah. producing too little. See, I always thought it was more of a peripheral issue where it was impacting the insulin receptor. I was actually going to ask you that. Is it impacting the insulin receptor? Is it increasing inflammation that's causing insulin receptor dysfunction? But it seems like, and it, that may be part of it, but it seems like uh, there's more of a central role, which, which is fascinating. Yeah, there's a central command dysfunction, right? And yeah. and, um, uh, and then it also there there are there's also plenty of data that shows that LPS also directly targets the pancreas too. Yeah. Um, there are organ specific toxicities that it causes, and so as it's creating this central insulin resistance by messing up your brain's ability to read your blood sugar levels, it's also then attacking your your islet cells in your pancreas causing their demise. So then at some point, not only do you have the central insulin resistance, but you have the typical uh, insulin uh, type 2 diabetic uh, pathology where you can't produce insulin anymore. You know, and so, um, so then, like you said, you, in that meantime, you get that both hypo and hyper, um, uh, you know, uh, amounts of sugar in, in the body. And w when you have an uh, overt amount of sugar in the, in the circulation, then you've got all of the other risk factors like you know glycation products and all of this toxicity that occurs from too much um, sugar in the blood. So it just, and again, it, you could look and seem like a healthy individual. You could be pretty lean, you know? Um, and, and, and the reason why that study was done with central insulin resistance is because, um, you know, when, when you look at the data, we're seeing more and more uh, people presenting at doctor's offices with type two diabetes much early on, you know, in their twenties, for example, yeah. and not being overweight, which we used to think was an is a necessary precursor. Yeah, and I think the ectomorph body type, those kind of thin shoulders like I am, I used to struggle with hypoglycemia. Those types of individuals tend to have that. Like my body was just producing way more insulin than I needed to for a given meal. And so I would have hypoglycemia, I would constantly be eating hungry all the time until I was able to get these things under control and I had irritable bowel as well, right? So yeah. there you yeah. go, it goes, goes hand in hand with it. My grandfather, type two diabetes, was never overweight, right? It was yeah. normal weight, right? And so we see that 
quite often. And, th and that's the mechanism you're talking about. Now, you know, I've always said that the, the act of eating itself, although of course we've got to eat and we want to eat good foods and we talk about eating anti-inflammatory foods, but the actual act of eating, even if you're eating anti-inflammatory foods, is actually provoking inflammation. And mm -hmm. I've heard you talk about that as well. So can you, can you go into more detail about that? Yeah. In fact, you know, eating is a, is a, is a pretty disruptive process to our intestinal uh, microbiota, to the systems. We're going to be releasing, you know, really strong stomach acid. We're going to be releasing bile salts, which are really strong antimicrobials. They also, you know, sequester all kinds of toxins from your diet, uh, take it to your liver. So now your liver is undergoing all of this stress during the eating process. Um, your, your bile actually uh, causes the uh, small intestines to release a whole set of antimicrobials. So the bile triggers something called the FXR nuclear receptor at the end of your small intestine. That causes all the intestinal lining cells to release antimicrobials. So you've got a lot of bacteria dying in the process of digestion. So just that part alone means what's happening during the process of digestion is you get a lot of um, release of LPS just the bacterial dying part, right? So, so just that alone, that one aspect of the process of digestion, that increased release of LPS is going to trigger an inflammatory response because a lot of that LPS will leak into your mucosal lining. And in the mucosal lining, it's going to start triggering uh, um, an inflammatory response. And then if your gut barrier is completely dysfunctional, it's going to be allowed to migrate all the way through into your circulatory system. That's when it's going to create the systemic immune response. So inevitably, you're going to get some sort of inflammatory response because you're bringing in all of these antigens into your system that your immune system has to check out and deal with, right? That's your gut is the largest sampling site for your immune system. That's why they say 70 to 80% of your immune tissue is in your gut because that's where most of the foreign material enters your body. And your immune system has to activate itself so it can start monitoring all the stuff that's coming through into your diet. And hopefully if you have a healthy microbiome and a well-functioning immune response, what tends to happen is you get this initial in immune response to the food coming in, which is normal. Your, food, your uh, innate immune system is supposed to go check things out like they're supposed to do. But then you've got this Treg response that is supposed to show up, the regulatory T cells, and dampen all of those inflammatory responses and go, all right, this is a protein we've seen before. We don't need to react to it. This is something else we've seen. We don't need to react to it. So your body goes through this initial inflammatory phase and then it starts to taper down and your immune system learns from it, right? But if that endotoxemia occurs and that LPS is allowed to migrate into your, deeper into your mucosa and then finally into your circulatory system, then you just get this huge cascade of systemic inflammation that just doesn't stop in the gut. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really the body has those mechanisms, those antimicrobial mechanisms, because anytime we eat anything, even if it was just cooked, there's going to be tons of bacteria and microbes that are on that. So we're bringing that in. So the body recognizes, Hey, this is a potential threat, right? So it wants to kind of almost basically sterilize stomach acid, right? To try to kill up pathogens, the bile, like you were talking about the antimicrobial uh, things that are that are released um, in the intestines themselves, mm -hmm. in order to basically sterilize the environment to protect against you know bacteria coming from that food and and releasing in. Yeah, and, and then is, uh, yeah. There's, there's another couple of sources that the that the body's yeah. trying to protect against. One is uh, our oral bacteria, so our yeah. mouth yeah. becomes yeah. a really big source 
of potentially toxigenic mm -hmm. uh, microbes, right? So yeah. our, our mouth over time, our microbiome in the mouth changes and it becomes a big source of gram-negative bacteria. Right. Um, so your body wants to neutralize those because you're gonna be swallowing a lot of those bacteria mm -hmm during the digestion process as you salivate and so on. And they don't, and your body doesn't want to have a huge um, influx of oral microbes into the small intestine. Um, and then the second part is just the native bacteria in the small intestine itself mm. need to be kept under control because a healthy small intestine actually has less than around 10 to the four CFUs of bacteria per gram of stool, uh, which means that it's a relatively low level of bacteria that the body wants to maintain, despite it being an ideal place for bacteria to grow outside of all the antimicrobial effects, right? So we're talking about a place that's warm and moist and lots of uh, food coming through all the time. So if, if we didn't have all of those antimicrobial control mechanisms in place, we would get a significant overgrowth in the small intestine, leading to a very, very common and disruptive condition called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Yeah. Right. So SIBO yep. is such a big issue right now, yep. and it's driven in large part by low stomach acid, so PPI use, so the use of antacids and, and uh, potron pump inhibitors uh, for reflux are very um, are, are known now described risk for SIBO. Uh, liver dysfunction and bile dysfunction is a known risk for SIBO. Um, about 68% of liver dysfunction patients have SIBO compared to about four, four to seven percent of non-liver dysfunction age-matched people. Um, so we know that the that the bile, that the antimicrobial secretions, that the stomach acid, all of those things are there also to reduce the overgrowth in the small intestine that can occur during the digestive process. But again, all of that kills large amounts of bacteria and causes a huge release of LPS during the digestive process. Yeah, for sure. And SIBO is an epidemic. And we also have CFO as well, small intestinal fungal overgrowth, which is just as prevalent as SIBO. Um, yeah. I see it all the time looking at organic acid tests and different things like that. And now, does the, the stomach acid and bile, is that, is that antifungal or how does our body help to reduce the fungal species that are in there? Yeah, so the um, stomach acid is absolutely antifungal. The, um, one of the things about fungus is they just don't do well in an acidic environment. And so the moment the pH is allowed to increase, uh, then they will start proliferating. They are the, the um, epitome of opportunistic growers, right? So the moment the conditions allow it. The biggest control, though, of fungus is bacteria. Bacteria do an amazing job of controlling fungus. Bacteria and fungus have had this millions of years of battle. In fact, our first antibiotic we got from a fungus, right? Uh, penicillin comes from a fungus. So we've learned about antifungals from bacteria and antibacterials from fungus um, because they've been battling each other uh, since the dawn of time. And, um, and one of our best control mechanisms to keep the fungal overgrowth um, in check is to have adequate amounts of good functional bacteria. Um, they will do that uh, to some degree. And so what you tend to see with the CFO is you tend to get this dysbiotic uh, dysbiosis in the microbial side and you get um, strange aberrant growths of microbes on the microbial side. And that creates a perfect environment for the fungus to go, hey, the, my competing microbes aren't, uh, aren't here anymore. I'm actually going to start overgrowing as well. And in fact, um, there's, there's enough evidence that shows that a lot of the fungal species like candida will team up with certain uh, opportunistic and pathogenic bacteria 
to grow together. Uh, you know, for example, Candida and Streptococcus can form com uh, complementary biofilms where they both grow. Mm. Um, you know, so they're both problematic organisms and they both over time develop this partnership where they go, okay, hey, the system is messed up. This is our chance to, to take over. Let's work together and create biofilms and, and protect each other and grow. So they do that together. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah, fascinating. I've seen on a lot of labs, uh, GI maps, things like that, can, candida overgrowth or just any yeast overgrowth and Klebsiella. Mm -hmm. Yep. A lot of times. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. They work, they work hand in hand. Um, and, and Klebsiella is one of those that, that tend to be overgrown in, um, in SIBO as well. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and Klebsiella comes from the mouth in, in, uh, in a good amount. Uh, Streptococcus is the same thing. What tends to happen in the case of SIBO? That's interesting. I didn't know that they're, they're oral bacteria. Yeah. Yeah, they they're, are. They're um, native to the, to the oral cavity and they're, they're dropping down, getting through the system and overgrowing yeah. the gut. Wow. Yep. Yeah, because they're allowed to survive through the stomach because yeah. the stomach acid levels are are um, uh, inadequate. And then um, other ones like Enterococcus, uh, Enterobacteria ACA, those are also in the mouth and mm -hmm. and end up in the uh, in the digestive tract. And and a lot of these pathogens that are in the mouth and present in the mouth at, at a significant amount um, are actually fecal oral contaminants, right? So the, these are entering the mouth and ending up uh, endemic in the mouth. Through oral, uh, through contamination from fecal uh, hmm. transfer, um, you know, fecal oral transfer is like a huge way of a vector for yeah. microbes and pathogens to get into our system, right? Um, if you've ever gone bowling and you put your fingers in a bowling ball, it's worse than putting it in the toilet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and how many of us are actually, you know, in the yeah. middle of bowling, you know, sterilizing our hands every time we pick up the bowling ball? We're not, right? So in between, we the, we're rolling the ball down the thing, we're picking up nachos and all that and eating it. And so those kind of like simple acts, touching doorknobs and all the things that we're now aware of that can transmit a pandemic virus, all of the same things transmit fecal oral contaminants. Um, so those things are in the mouth and then those, the, the, they're allowing, they're being allowed to enter the small intestine. Wow. Now, a normal healthy system should be able to disinfect that, right? With good yeah. stomach acid bile, things like that. It's really people that are more compromised or maybe they're under more stress, had a bad night's sleep, something along those lines, or they're more susceptible. Well, so, um, you know, there's a number of things. So zinc deficiency yeah. will reduce your uh, stomach acid production. Um, and that alone can allow those microbes yeah. to get through and, and flourish. And that's uh, like a vicious cycle because you need stomach acid to absorb zinc. Absolutely right. Yes, and so you know, and we're, we're inadequate in both, right? Uh, and then, of course, use of PPIs, the proton pump inhibitors, which are the most widely used class of, of drugs out there. The, this is for reflux and GERD. Uh, use of antacids, um, H. pylori overgrowth. H. pylori overgrowth in the stomach brings down stomach acid production. Um, so we've got a number of things uh, within within the system. Even antihistamines may play a role. I haven't found. Um, adequate research yet, but we know that histamines are the number one trigger for the production of stomach acid. Right, right. Um, and and so if we are we have this dysfunctional immune system, so we need to use all these antihistamines to reduce our allergic response to things. That those antihistamines may actually be reducing mm -hmm. the, the formation of stomach acid. So stomach acid is considered um, the gastric barrier. It's in fact mm -hmm. in most immunology textbooks, it's it's listed as the first part of the innate immune system because it's designed to kind of destroy bacteria that's coming through 
the oral route. Um, and in destroying the bacteria, one, one of the benefits of that is you're basically breaking up the bacteria cells and then sending in inactive bacteria into the intestines where the immune system can sample it without the risk of the bacteria being able to grow and proliferate, but the immune system gets a chance to sample parts of the bacteria and start understanding recognition patterns in those microbes. So you are getting sampling, you're getting intelligence, you're tutoring the immune system without allowing viable cells to get in. Wow, yeah, real powerful. And I know at rest, I've heard that with your stomach acid, it's normally around 3 to 3.5 pH, which is very acidic, but just not as acidic enough to digest protein, minerals, things like that, disinfect the gut. It needs to get down around 1.5 to 2.0 pH to really be able to do that effectively. And that's a huge jump. It's very energy demanding. It takes a lot of energy. And in our society, we're, we're eating on the go, right? Just the idea of fast food, right? Eating quickly. Um, is not conducive for good good stomach acid release. And so most people really are not producing enough stomach acid on a regular basis. They're not. And, and the eating quickly thing is, is something that is key that you mentioned because um, the act of chewing is the first signal that leads to the stomach acid release, right? So if we are not chewing adequately and we're just chewing, you know, we're, taking, we're chewing food six, seven, eight times and then swallowing it, we haven't even given the stomach enough time to release the stomach acid to start coating that food that's coming in. So slow chewing and then like taking breaks between bites, all of those things matter because we're giving the system time to uh, upregulate the digestive um, component of it. Um, so yeah, absolutely. That, that, that fast food, that fast eating, um, all of that stuff compromises the, the production of stomach acid. Yeah. Now let's, let's talk a little bit about intermittent fasting and how that impacts the microbiome. Obviously, we talked about how when we eat, it's going to create this whole inflammatory process uh, in our system. And so taking breaks from eating as opposed to, you know, eating, let's say, two meals or two eating periods a day, as opposed to eating five or six, mm -hmm. um, how is that going to impact our microbiome and our inflammatory levels? Yeah. You know, and I will say just in general, um, to me, intermittent fasting is one of the easiest things you can do to significantly improve your health outcome. You know, it's just, it's so powerful in so many ways. Number one, uh, it's really important to note that although counterintuitive, not feeding the microbiome can actually dramatically increase diversity, right? Mm -hmm. There are a number of bacteria in the microbiome that do much better when there's no food coming through. Um, the way the microbiome works, because it's a pretty intricate um, ecosystem, is there are lots of different bacteria, right? Let's say you've got somewhere around 300 different species of bacteria in the gut. Not all of those bacteria have the capability of digesting the primary nutrients that are coming in in your diet, right? There's only a percentage of them that can actually digest the primary nutrients. The rest of the bacteria are dependent on secondary metabolites that are produced by those bacteria that are digesting the primary nutrients, right? So. The way the ecosystem works is it fluctuates a little bit throughout the day because when you are feeding yourself and when those primary nutrients are going in, the bacteria that do really well digesting the primary nutrients are the ones that tend to flourish. And then the other ones tend to get suppressed to some degree and they sit there waiting for the secondary byproducts and the metabolites from that primary digestion. And then when the primary nutrients are gone and there's nothing but the secondary metabolites flooding the system, then the other ones do really well. And then they digest those. And then there's tertiary nutrients that feed another group of bacteria, right? So there's this continuous stepwise manner of nutrients that are broken down, um, metabolized, created, that now feed another group of bacteria. 
So in a typical feeding period. It's like a food chain, basically. It's a total food chain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, Alphas and, that eat first, right? And then the yep. kid kind of eat last. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and, and then there are microbes at the top of the food yeah. chain and ones at the bottom of the food chain. Um, you know, and, and the important thing is, and here's what's really critical about that. In every one of those digestion steps, there's something being produced that we need that is absolutely critical to us, mm. right? Uh, because again, we depend on these microbes and their metabolism for a large part of our biochemical function. Uh, for example, you get, uh, let's say you eat a, a, a colored fruit or vegetable uh, in there, in that the color is made up of some of the polyphenols and, and carotenoids that are in there. Uh, but let's just take polyphenols out of the plant-based uh, material. Um, so you get, you get a plant-based material that comes in, um, you've, and it's loaded with polyphenols. The primary digester can break down the cellulose that make that the plant is made up of, right? This, the type of carbohydrates that the plant is made up of. So then that so that bacteria starts metabolizing and breaking down the cellulose part of it, and and it and it creates its energy from the cellulose. Now the breakdown of the cellulose releases then the polyphenols. The polyphenols then go to the secondary metabolizers who convert them into something called urolithins. And urolithins are absolutely necessary for our mitochondria to regenerate themselves, right? And so if we did not give a break in the feeding uh, cycle to allow for the secondary metabolizers to start working on the polyphenols, we would never get the urolithins out of it. Hmm. Um, because if we're continuously fed, it's the primary digesters that are continuously active. And so what we find is that when we give our body breaks and we give ourselves times of no feeding, then we actually get a better proliferation of all bacteria and it actually increases diversity in the microbiome. Now, another really exciting and important thing that happens with the microbiome when you're not feeding it is you turn on housekeeping cells. Um, the microbiome is a diurnal system like our own system. It's, a, it's got a 24-hour clock, about 12-hour cycles. When your microbiome enters a phase of being fasted, it turns on housekeeping bacteria that turn on housekeeping genes. Uh, and that's things like mitophagy and autophagy. So that's the, the genetic uh, triggers for cleaning out damaged mitochondria, cleaning out damaged DNA and cells and all that, and doing all the housekeeping work to keep your system functioning healthy. Those housekeeping bacteria don't come on when you're being fed. Hmm. You know, and so it's really interesting. I didn't know the bacteria were releasing signals that was telling the body to do that. Yeah, they are. And then one of those signals are like your lithins, for example. Yeah. Um, they, they stimulate mitophagy. They stimulate your own cells yeah, to, to remove, yeah, remove the, the dysfunctional mitochondria and, and create mitogenesis, which is new mitochondria. So, so we need, we, we are dependent on that period of repair and recovery um, that we need so much. It's no different than, you know, we know working out is good for you, but if you work out nonstop forever and never stop and give yourself rest, it's not going to be good for you, right? The, the recovery part of a workout is as important as a workout. Yeah. Um, so the recovery part of our, of our biochemistry and our metabolic process is just important as the, the, the actual yeah. metabolic itself. And you also start to see, you know, I've read in the research that things like acromansia mucinophilia start to rise, which is a mucus degrader. And so it's eating the intestinal lining, especially as you start to extend that fast even longer. Yep. What kind of impact does that have? So it's interesting. There's, there's a number of bacteria that can eat away at the mucus lining. Yep. Uh, some are really good and some are bad. 
Um, when you have dysbiotic bacteria eating away at the mucus lining, they do so at a net damage level to the mucus lining, right? Meaning they're eating away at the mucus lining, but it's not being reproduced at the, rate, at the same rate to keep regenerating it. Acromancy, on the other hand, when they eat away at the mucus lining, it activates a gene called the MUC-T gene. That gene stimulates goblet cells to reproduce more mucus. Mm. And so their act of eating it is a way of regenerating the mucosal lining, which is extremely important because the mucosal lining traps all of this bad stuff that's entering the body, and we need to continuously slough it off and get rid of it and generate new mucosa. Um, so acromancia's role in eating the mucus is really important for regenerating gut health. Um, and so, and again, acromancia does well when you're fasting. Um, acromancia does well with polyphenols. Um, and so th those are microbes that uh, are examples of ones that actually do some of the cleanup process and the repair uh, process in our system. And they, they function well when we're not feeding them, um, when we're not feeding the, the system itself. Um, and incidentally, acromancia is inversely correlated to everything in the, under the metabolic syndrome spectrum. Mm. You know, and, and for your audience, I'm not sure what that means. Inversely correlated means opposite uh, impact, meaning higher acromancia, lower risk, lower acromancia, higher risk. Um, in fact, there's numerous studies that show if you have high levels of acromancia, you are well protected against things like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, obesity, and so on. And so acromancia basically makes the mucosal membrane more resilient to stress. Yeah. Way to summarize that. Yeah. And regenerates it. Yeah. And helps regenerate it. Absolutely. Yep. And so when you see acromancia in high levels, right, if you're doing a stool test or something like that, it's a positive sign. It's a good, good sign of overall yep. metabolic health. It is. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's, um, it's a really beneficial, what we call keystone strain. Yeah, uh, meaning its its role it goes beyond its own individual function because it has a big influence on the rest of the microbes around it as well. Mm, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about um, high fat diets and how that can impact endotoxemia, and then and then also what we'll, we'll, we can differentiate between what types of fats, right? right. Like how that can impact it as well. Yeah. You know, it's interesting about high fat diets because what will naturally happen if you're dysbiotic yeah. and you have a high fat diet, it will increase endotoxemia. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it does it for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, one of the things that occurs is your, your bacteria that make LPS. LPS is a uh, fatty acid, essentially. It's a lipopolysaccharide, which means it has sugar uh, component at the top and then a carbohydrate component, and then it has a fatty tail. And, and the bacteria use dietary fat to make LPS. So one of the things that occurs is you get more LPS being made with, with the um, intake of higher amounts of fat. Now, um, and then the other thing that occurs is that when you have fat in your diet, you have uh, lipid rafts, you have chylomicrons that are designed to go and grab the nutritious fat and bring it into the system. Because LPS is also a fatty acid, you get an uh, inadvertent grabbing of LPS as well. So then you've got your lipid transporters that are accidentally, if you will, bringing the lipids in. Now, all of this becomes negated with a healthy microbiome. And we saw that in our study where we took um, individuals, um, you know, healthy, young, normal uh, individuals. This is a study we published in 2017. And then and, and we gave them a high-fat, high-caloric meal. Now, mind you, that was a fast food meal, so not a good fat meal. Right. Um, and, and, and with the fast food meal, we saw a huge influx of endotoxins. 
Then we gave him probiotics for 30 days, and it completely blunted the endotoxemia, even with the fast food meal, even with the bad fats. So we can eat fats perfectly fine. We can enjoy all of the the health benefits from fats, but we need to make sure our microbiome is healthy enough to handle it. Yeah, yeah. And also, I would imagine high-fat, high-sugar starch food combinations like ice cream or something like that have an even more potent effect on endotoxemia. Totally, yeah, because um, in, in our in various experiments to see what we can use to induce endotoxemia even more, um, two of the things that were the most uh, potent is ice cream, um, which, which you mentioned, and then uh, pizza as well. And pizza has really high levels of uh, carbohydrates and, and simple carbs and so on. So, and it's very insulogenic, you know, and so right. that, that combination can be, can be uh, a big, um, you know, a two-pronged negative approach. Um, but we, you know, one of the things I always tell people is, hey, you've got, um, you know, keto that can really help you with many other things. Make sure your microbiome is healthy and your body will handle it perfectly fine. That's true because I, I would say about my experience, about two-thirds put them on a ketogenic diet, they do great. And then there's another third, their gut's hurting, they get acne, um, they're, they're dizzy, you know, they're, they're, they have all, all different types of issues, a lot of issues with bile flow, right? Being a factor. Yeah. And so these people obviously are coming in with a dysbiotic gut flora. So what have you seen as far as probiotics, right? I know you're, you're an expert in probiotics. What sort of probiotics make the biggest impact in changing the microbiome? Yeah. And so that was our whole focus. What you just said there is the, is the key in our whole focus in understanding what kind of probiotics really, really will have a, a profound therapeutic effect in the gut, right? Because no matter what probiotic you take, even if you're taking something that has like 500 billion CFUs, which sounds like a really massive dose, you're putting it in a sea of 10, of 100 trillion bacteria, mm. right? So even that dose is minuscule yeah. compared to the microbes that are actually in the system. Um, so no probiotic in my view, at the, and this is 10 years ago and I was looking at probiotics in a really kind of uh, uh, detailed manner, to me, no probiotic would have any significant impact in the body unless it has an influence on the other microbes, right? It has to influence that sea of 100 trillion bacteria in order to really conduct a function. Because if we're counting on that probiotic and its own little minuscule capabilities, the moment it hits the microbiome, it's lost in a sea of microbes, right? So, um, so that, was, that was the idea we went behind it. And so when we started looking at it, we were looking for evidence of, of bacteria uh, from, that came in from the external source that had an influence on the microbiome. And in fact, what we found were these bacillus endospores um, that were used since 1952 in Europe and Latin America as a prescription drug for treating things like dysentery and other gut infections, right? And so that was fascinating to me because when you look at that, what that means is this microbe, this external microbe that you take in as a probiotic can go into your gut and somehow read the microbial environment to find problematic bacteria to bring down the growth of problematic bacteria, thereby curing things like dysentery and, uh, and other gut infections. So in my mind, I was thinking, okay, well, clearly those microbes have a very strong ability of doing something called quorum sensing. Mm. Uh, and in fact, you know, one of, one of my uh, postgraduate research work um, was on infectious E. coli, and it was all on quorum sensing, meaning the ability of microbes to read other microbial signatures, right? Um, microbes use this technique a lot in their infectious uh, expressions. For example, 
Listeria monocytogenase, which is a bacteria that comes as a foodborne illness, it's not a very powerfully infective bacteria, meaning its toxin production is kind of subpar. Um, you know, so when it gets into the gut, it knows that unless it reaches a certain threshold of population of Listeria, if they release their toxin uh, genes, then they're not going to cause enough of an infection to be to be uh, successful. In fact, what they're going to do is trigger the immune system, and the immune system is going to find them and knock them out. So one of the things Listeria does is that once it gets into the gut, it communicates with all the other Listeria in there, and when they reach a certain threshold of, of population, that's when they all together send a signal and release their toxins, right? So they, so they know that the numbers matter. So bacteria do this quite powerfully. They read each other's signature. Um, and so what we were looking for is a bacteria that can read other bacteria's signature and then respond to it in a very profound way. There, there was lots of pharmaceutical studies that showed that these spores can respond to the negative overgrowth of bacteria we started hypo hypothesizing that maybe they can also um, support the good beneficial bacteria in that same way. The same way they bring down bad bacteria, can they increase good bacteria? And that's what we jumped into the research with and we found sure enough, these spores, when you send them into a dysbiotic gut, what they're going to do is start bringing down the overgrown bacteria and, and certainly bringing down the pathogenic and problematic bacteria. And then they'll start increasing the growth of all of those keystone strains, and other important microbes. Uh, a paper we published in August of last year showed a 30% increase in diversity in three weeks of just bringing the spores into the system. That's how they work so profoundly is they have that huge impact on the rest of the microbiome. And they're not, they're not native to our gut, right? Now, normally they're living in nature in the soil, is that correct? No, so they, they are determined to be native to the gut. So oh, they are. 2009, okay. yeah, a couple of papers published showed that they are commensal bacteria. What's unique about them over most of the commensal bacteria that are in your gut is they have the capability of actually leaving the body and coming back in. Most of the bacteria that live in your gut, once they leave the body, they die almost immediately, right? Most of the bacteria that live in your gut are what we call obligate anaerobes, meaning oxygen is actually toxic to them. And so the moment they leave the body, they're too sensitive and they end up dying in the, digest in the, in the open environment, so they can't come back in these bacteria know how to form something called an endospore. So when they get close to the terminal end of your colon, they actually go into the spore state, which is a metabolically inactive state. So they're dormant. They cover themselves with a thick protein armor-like coating. And then that allows them to survive perfectly fine in the outside environment for millions of years, as it turns wow. out. And then you can re-swallow them. Because of that coating, they survive through the gastric system. And then once they hit the small intestine, they open up and go, go to work for you cleaning out your gut. That's amazing. It's like a, like a smart drug in a sense. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. It has incredible when, intelligence to it. When you look at what all they do, um, and we started studying them in, in animal studies, um, especially with leaky gut, and we started seeing that um, there's so much data showing that they can help regenerate intestines. Mm. Um, and they, they actually increase the height of the microvilli, the really important finger like folding in your, in your intestines. Um, they uh, increase the expression of all these tight junction proteins that maintain that closed um, uh, passageway between the intestinal lining cells. They actually um, dramatically modulate the immune response in the gut. They do all of these favorable things. Um, and they basically um, you know, do that, they clean up your gut, and then they leave. 
because they use the environment as a vector to get from host to host. Yeah, really fascinating. Now, our ancestors would have been consuming them like if they picked a carrot out of the ground or something like that, they would have normally been in contact with them. Is that correct? That, that's the idea. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, there's some really good studies on glacial ice cores. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they study glacial ice cores because you can then find different sections of the ice core to, to understand what the environment looked like at that time. Right, these glacier ices, uh, the, the, the thick glacial ice is 10, 15 million years old. So when you core through it and you pull out a core sample, different uh, sections of the glacial ice indicate what the environment looked like at that time. And so there are all these glacial ice core studies that look at the microbial environment during different parts of the, uh, of the Earth's uh, formation. And they find that, you know, two million years ago, one million years ago, uh, during the course that humans would be um, evolving, coming out, um, they had really high numbers of these bacillus endospores in the environment. And the amazing thing is the ones that are finding in glacial ice that are 2 million years old have 95% genetic homology to the, to the bacillus that you have now in the, in the, in the undisturbed wow. ecosystem, right? And so um, absolutely, our ancestors would have been teeming with these microbes just from not sterilizing their environment, not from sterilizing their food. And one of the things I've always told people who are in the ancestral food movement, uh, you know, who want to eat more like our ancestors yeah. did, is that the big difference between, uh, between what you're doing now and what our ancestors did is their food were covered in these bacteria. Yeah. They had that sterilized. Mm -hmm. Ours yeah. is sterilized, yeah. That's right. Yeah, really fascinating. And I know you created that product, Megasporbiotic, which I use with a lot of my clients, especially really challenging gut cases. And it just seems to work amazing. And it's potent, right? So yeah. uh, I had a lot of clients said, you know what, even one capsule was too much, right? We've got to start a little bit lower for some of those sensitive individuals. And it's things like 4 billion CFUs, right? And there's lots of probiotics that are out there that are 100 billion, 200 billion, right? And so it's a, it's a lower dosage but very uh, powerful, right? Very potent probiotics that really make an impact on your gut. So, and is that the same probiotic that you were talking about in that study um, where you took those young individuals, healthy young individuals, and gave them fast food, right? Mm -hmm. And then added the probiotic and it reduced the endotoxemia. Is that the same probiotic you were discussing? Same one, yeah. We, we yeah. do all our studies with the, with the Megaspore product. Yep. Um, and, and now we're up to, I think we've published six studies um, and we've got um, 12 studies ongoing or completed. Some of them are still waiting publication. So um, yeah, absolutely. That it, the, what's interesting about it is when we first came out with it, we started talking to people about it. The first response was 4 billion, that's it. You know, because that's a tiny dose when you think about the marketing side of probiotics, right? Um, doses just have kept increasing over time. Um, but we were trying to match what would happen in nature. When you look at the data on what the, uh, the relevant exposure is to these microbes in, in a natural environment, it's about that. It's somewhere between two to four billion a day is, the, is a reasonable exposure. So our question became, you know, is that level therapeutic? You know, and, and if it is therapeutic, then it speaks to the therapeutic nature of these strains throughout the course of human evolution. Right. Um, and, and how we've, as a species, countered on that. And so we started doing all our studies with that 4 billion dose. 
And, um, and before we ever did our first study, we have a clinic here in Chicago. We took 100 of our most difficult patients out of the clinic and just gave them the product. And just like you said, you know, we had a percentage of them that, that, that starting 4 billion doses was way too strong. You know, and we actually had to go as little as a quarter of a cap or half a cap for some of these patients for a period of time uh, until their body got used to the change. Because what's happening is these microbes are going in and they're creating dramatic change in your microbiome. And for some people, you'll feel that as loose stool, cramping, you know, and, and other Herxheimer type of response. But in general, that's a positive thing. We want something to go in there and change that ecosystem. Yeah. You know, we wanted to make that those profound differences. Um, and again, all of that is in, in uh, the idea of mimicking what is supposed to happen naturally um, in our ecosystem. Yeah, and just to clarify my statement, most people don't really know, they don't notice any negative side effects when they consume it, right? They just right. notice net positive over time as they're taking it, but it's the very sensitive individuals. So maybe yeah. you're there, it's like, you know, you've got loose stools all the time, um, you know, you're stuck to the bathroom or you deal with chronic constipation, you're going to notice some sort of impact when you start to take mega biotic. And like he said, that's good. It's pushing us in a certain direction. We might need to drop the dosage a little bit, kind of help you yeah. get through that and allow your, your system to balance a little slower. But uh, it, yeah, it's definitely the best thing I found to help push um, those, those really sensitive, challenging cases start to push them in the right direction. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I want to have you on uh, again at some point here so we can talk more about some of your other products because the mega IgG, yeah. which is bovine serum, uh, immunoglobins. I've also seen that make a big impact. And, um, the, also the mega mucosa, another, yeah. another fantastic product for helping build the mucosal membrane. Maybe you can just briefly touch on those and we'll come back sure. and interview. Uh, or we go more deeper on those. Yeah, the IgG is a super exciting product for me. Um, we came across it because we started working with a company that makes it in a small consortium of companies that were working with the top HIV researchers in the world. We were trying to resolve the issue of HIV enteropathy, which is the leaky gut that HIV patients get. It's a severe form of leaky gut. It actually mimics exactly the kind of leaky gut that non-HIV people get. The only difference is in HIV, it happens much faster. And, uh, and in fact, the NIH published a study showing that that type of HIV leaky gut is the biggest driver of mortality in the disease wow. yeah. and the endotoxemia that's, that, that it creates, right? Um, so same exact pathophysiology as all other chronic illnesses, um, except it's accelerated much more profound in HIV. We started working because we had a study already showing we can stop this leaky gut. And, and then we started working with this company with this immunoglobulin, and they had actually already published two or three HIV studies showing that the immunoglobulins could dramatically reduce the inflammatory response in the mucosa, in fact, can aid in the repairing of the mucosa, mm. and in fact, bring up the adaptive immune response in the mucosa itself. Now, the other thing they showed is because this is a bovine serum uh, immunoglobulin, it comes from, from cows. And so the cows who are out in the pastures and all, you know, wherever they are, they're encountering all kinds of antigens, right? Viruses, bacteria, fungals, mold, everything. And so they're building immunity antibodies against all of this stuff. So then when we isolate their antibodies and, and take it for our own use, we now have these amazing antibodies that bind and neutralize almost every mold toxin we would come across, bacterial toxins, viral particles, all of these things. 
So it dramatically brings down the toxigenic and immunogenic load in the body. So it's like a, a super intelligent um, you know, uh, absorber of everything that enters our body that's toxigenic. Um, so it's a great pairing with the, with the Megaspore. Yeah, and I know there's a lot of people out there with genetic deficiencies that are getting injections for different yeah. organs and things like that. And I don't know that this is obviously quite as potent as that. It's not a, a, a medication or pharmaceutical product, but, uh, but obviously it's, it's having an impact on the overall uh, immune activity that's in the system. Yeah. And, you know, as we speak, you know, obviously we're, we're in a pandemic right now in a quarantine with uh, COVID-19. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people are talking about things like vitamin C and zinc we touched on and things like that, but also immunoglobins, you know, whether it's coming from something like colostrum or, you know, the, the, the bovine serum immunoglobin can be really powerful support as well. Absolutely. It's a, it's a huge lending hand to the immune system. Uh, and, it, and it deals with a lot of the stuff that we're encountering on a daily basis. And it brings down that inflammatory re requirement. It brings down the toxigenic response. Uh, in the body, and it really significantly aids the immune system. They even have studies on, on ulcerative colitis, uh, people with, uh, in, in fact, kids of pediatric ulcerative colitis, showing a significant improvement in the amount of uh, damage that's going on in the, in the colon um, that, that's associated with ulcerative colitis. So it has a repair function as well. So it pairs really well with the Megaspore. The Megamucosa was an essential product that as yeah. we started to realize that the mucosa plays such an important role in, in that barrier function, in the sampling with the immune system, in as a conduit for communication between the microbiome and the intestinal epithelium, we realized that there was so many conditions driven by a net damage to that mucosa without adequate repair. So we went the simple route and we said, okay, what are the things that have been clinically shown to be able to repair the mucosa? Uh, one is this IgG. So then in the mega mucosa, you've got one grand dose of the IgG. Uh, polyphenols. Polyphenols have shown to be able to dramatically bring down oxidative stress in the mucosa, reduce inflammatory response, and increase the diversity in bacteria in the mucosa so that you have enough bacteria to regenerate the mucosal lining. And then the final thing is four critical amino acids. There are, there are all these studies that show that these four amino acids are the main building blocks of the mucosal structure. And when you add these four amino acids into experimentally damaged mucosa, you increase the regeneration of mucosa by 95%. Wow. Nobody was using these in, hmm. in repair products uh, that we saw at the time. So we said, okay, we got to get this into the product as well. So we created this like highly potent mucosal regeneration um, in microbiome labs itself in, with our doctor clients. That's the second most uh, widely sold product um, because people are just seeing seeing it as a game changer for a lot of their patients. Yeah, it's, it's obviously getting great results. And so what is what is the clinical dose of uh, the bovine serum immunoglobins? I know that one's got one gram. I believe the mega IgG is what, two, two, two grams? Two grams, yeah. Our, our recommended dose on that is four caps a day, which right. is two grams. Right. Um, and then you can get a gram from the IgG as well. Three grams a day is a fantastic dose. Mm. Yep. For, that, for that immunoglobulin. So the way we tell people is, you know, obviously you take your megaspore when you take it, which yeah. whatever meal of the day you prefer. And then you drink the mega mucosa, which is a powdered drink. You drink yep. that throughout the day. Um, and you, it's just one scoop is all you need. And then typically at night before bed, you can take that other four caps of the IgG to aid in all of the repair mm -hmm. that's supposed to go on during the nighttime. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, I know in some of the protocols you guys have created also, a lot of times you'll, 
amp up the mega IgG in the beginning, right? Yeah. Really clear things out, get the immune system functioning better, and then start to bring that mega mucosa in as well, right? To, to uh, So you don't usually use that in the beginning, although you can, certainly can, yeah. and, and get good results. But you can also bring it in later yeah. and rebuild that, that mucosal lining. Absolutely. So, and, and in fact, starting with the um, uh, mega IgG, at four do at four caps, six caps, uh, yeah. right off the bat, can be really useful for those patients that are highly sensitive. Sensitive, yeah, yeah, and and would have that kind of uh, hurts type of reaction from starting the spores because they're sensitive to the changes that occur in the microbiome. Yeah, totally. Well, last question: What are let's say your top five foods to support the microbiome? What do you like? Um, so, you know, roots and tubers do a great job mm -hmm. of supporting the microbiome. Lots of um, microbes in the colon, um, you know, really enjoy roots and tubers. Um, they, they have enough resistant starches in them that feed some of these really important keystone strains. Um, I do like, um, you know, foods that have high levels of carotenoids. So colored fruits and vegetables, um, foods that are high in omega, like uh, fish, omega fatty acids play a really important role in dampening immune response in the gut lining. In fact, um, EPA, the EPA component of mega fatty acids, play a really important role in the immune function in the, in the mucosa and bringing down something called AA-EPA ratio, uh, which is extremely yeah. important as well. Acid. Um, yeah, 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 exactly, the arachidonic yeah. acid pathway, yep. which is a big inflammatory yeah. pathway in the gut because damage is going on all the time. Um, you know, any sort of uh, antioxidant foods, um, oxidative stress is a, is a, is a big issue uh, within the microbiome um, because oxidative stress actually creates uh, these reactive oxygen species that can actually kill off lots of the good bacteria. And, they, and then, of course, it drives inflammation. Inflammation is a setting for dysbiosis within the microbiome. Um, and then, you know, some, some good lean meats are all good. Um, you know, and especially if you can get a little bit more of the, like the, the, the cartilage parts, uh, you know, the, the collagen, yeah, the collagen, you know, those, those parts, um, really service certain types mm -hmm. of bacteria within the microbiome. Um, and that adds to the diversity in the diet, you know, where you, you mm -hmm. you're getting different types of nutrients, the, the iron that comes in, uh, from those, uh, also play a role. The amino acids, of course, uh, play a significant role. So, um, you know, to me, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty diverse diet kind of guy. I, yeah. I try to eat lots of different things. Um, and, um, you know, most of the time I try to kind of mimic what my ancestors would have eaten. Yeah. Do you like to use a lot of carminatives and things that help support uh, digestive juice flow, like artichokes and ginger and different things like that? You like a lot of that stuff? Totally. Like bitters. Yeah, um, herbs. In fact, we have a product called MegaGuard uh, that we created with um, these licorice derivatives, mm. and artichoke, which and the artichoke we get from it is actually a drug in Germany uh, for uh, dyspepsia, mm. uh, functional bile flow and all that. Um, and then, of course, um, we, we also have ginger in there as well. It's a yeah. high concentration ginger oil because ginger plays such an important role in soothing the entire bowel movement process. Right? Yeah, so good. Um, yeah, absolutely. Those things are really critical. And bitters play a really important role, both in the small and in the large intestine, in triggering um, insulogenic response to the food. So it actually triggers cyclic AMP, which enhances fat burning um, and, and also enhances the, the release of leptin and adiponectin, yeah. which are the hormones required for satiety. 
So wow. bitters play a really important role as well. That's why curcumin, ginger, apple cider, vinegar, things like that all impact and reduce the overall glycemic impact of the food that you're eating. Absolutely, so, yeah. yeah. They, they play such yeah. an important role. Those herbs and spices yeah. um, aid so a lot in that. So good. Well, Kieran, this has been an amazing interview, and I just want to acknowledge you for your depth of research and your ability to really fluently be able to communicate that. This has been one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever done, and Really, really enjoyed it. And I'm going to have you back on again. So those of you guys that are listening, if you want Kieran back on, we can go a lot deeper in a lot of these topics. Um, just leave a comment. Let it, let us know. Uh, let us know what you want to know. And uh, we'll set up an, a future interview. So again, thanks so much, Kieran. And uh, for those of you guys that are out there listening, remember that your life is more important than you think it is. So start taking action to improve your health. Uh, follow the steps that we talked about today to support your microbiome, the products that Kieran mentioned, the Mega Sporbiotic, uh, the Mega Mucosa, the Mega IgG, Mega Guard. Uh, we, we'll have links to those. So check those out if you're listening to the video and uh, check out the show notes on my website if you're listening to the podcast so you can get those products. And uh, thanks again, Kieran. And we'll see you guys on a future podcast. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.